Well, good morning, GPAC, um, and all who else are watching online. That's the beautiful thing about technology is that the reach is vast and large. I want to thank you for joining us this morning um, as we dive into um, the book of Job. Uh, and so before we begin, there's just one thing that I kind of want to say is uh, there is a very wide gamut of uh, belief and thinking on how to interpret this book and what to draw out of this book and what all the different aspects mean. And so what I want to um, present to you and help maybe hopefully explain to you is, is my very uh, small, meager attempt at understanding um, this book. I don't claim to know everything. I don't claim to understand everything. But I hope to point out to you some things that are very interesting um, and important um, to note. So with that said, we're going to start, Lord, uh, for your glory and honor. Amen. We've got a lot to get through this morning. Uh, so Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you want, you can follow along. We're going to be pounding through this pretty quick. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Um, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, very many servants. He was the greatest of all the people of the East. So this guy is pretty prominent um, and important. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, um, so they would have a feast, whether that was every week or every day of the week, they would go to a different brother's house or once a week or once a month, whatever it was. And they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number for them all. And Job had said, this is interesting to note, that it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Not, not verbally, but in their hearts. He was concerned about their hearts already at this point in the very beginning. And so thus Job did continually. So this sets the stage for Job and what's about to happen to him. And here we see a guy who feared God, shunned evil, and he was concerned about the hearts of his children, which is super important. God had blessed him greatly. He had so much stuff and possessions. Um, and now we get this kind of zoomed out view of something that happens in the heavenly realm, which is amazing. Um, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, which is reference to the angels, they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. The angels came to God to report. They came to God. They had to get a report for what's going on, and I find it interesting. Satan is with them. He has to come and report to God about what's going on. So the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? as if God didn't really know. But Satan answers the Lord from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Uh, it makes me think of that verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says, uh, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So this is what Satan is doing. He's like, I've been searching all over the earth. And then in verse 8, it says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God brought up Job to Satan saying, hey, have you considered Job? Now, it's not like Satan hadn't considered Job because he definitely had because he reported on him. He answered the Lord in verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him? This is where we get hedge of protection prayer from. Um, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. They've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So what is Satan's belief here at this moment? Is that the only reason that Job serves God and worships God and fears God is because God gives him stuff. That's Satan's argument here. It's like, if you took away all his stuff, he wouldn't worship you and he wouldn't serve you. I mean, I need to pause here for a moment and I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Do we serve God just because of what he gives us? You can think about that for yourself. So, Satan says, God, you strike out, you take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. That's a pretty bold statement. The Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands, only against him, his life, him physically, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And now we get this, this moment in Job's life where everything comes crashing down. And I say moment because it says, while the other guy was still telling him the story of what tragedy has happened, the next guy showed up. So realistically, within minutes, everything came crashing down. You can read it in, uh, starting in verse 13. We're not going to read through all of it. But there was four servants that showed up. The first three are like, hey, dude, all your camels and sheep, uh, they're, they're gone, and your yoke of oxen and your, and your donkey, and all your servants that were with all of those animals, they're all dead except for us three dudes who escaped to come and tell you. And these guys are telling him the story. At the same moment, the fourth guy comes and shows up, and he says, Job, all your sons were having a feast in the oldest brother's house, and a tornado came and struck the four walls of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they all died. And then we get to this in verse uh, 20. This is Job's response to this. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When everything came crashing down, he fell on his knees and worshipped God. He blessed the name of the Lord. Now, I'd love to be able to say that I would do the same thing in that circumstance, but I don't know because I have not been faced with that. But I think that is amazing. And I'd love to just sit and camp here in this moment for a little bit, but this isn't where it ends. We zoom out again into the heavenly realms and see again in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, give a report of what's going on, and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where are you come from? What have you been doing? And he replies, walking around up and down on the earth, you know, looking for someone to devour. And he's like, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. You kind of feel like God is proud of Job in this moment. Who fears God and turns away from evil. He holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason or without cause. He didn't sin. There was no reason for that punishment. And then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. I can just hear that. 
All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand against his bone and his flesh, and then he will curse you to your face. So Satan's first argument is that he's only serving you because of all the stuff you give him. Take that away, he'll curse you. He won't serve you. And then God takes it away. Job is still integral and says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan's like, well, you know, you didn't actually afflict him personally. A man will do up anything to save himself. He'll give up anything. He'll say anything to save himself. That's his belief. And the Lord says to him, behold, he is in your hands. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. Now, a little beware here of some TMI for these sores. I did some research. These were not nice. I mean, they're, they're called loathsome sores. And it says in, this, in the second part of verse 7 that they were from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. So the top of his head and the bottom of his feet were covered in these sores. And these would have been big, open, gross, pussy sores. Um, in verse or in chapter 7, verse 5, we see a little bit more of Job describing what these sores are like, and it's a little bit um, gross. He says that my body is clothed in worms and dirt. There were worms that had gotten into these rotting open sores and were living in them and infested in this rotten flesh that was covered over his entire body. He said he was clothed in worms and dirt. And it's no surprise that later on uh, in chapter 19, Job cries out and he says, I am repulsive to my wife. Because this was not something that was pleasant. But we get to this point in verse 9 of chapter 2. His wife comes to him and she says, she's a little bit like, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Are you still hanging on to God? She's like, curse God and die. What she's really meaning there is curse God and then he's going to kill you because you cursed him. But you should just do that because that's going to be better than what you're going through right now. Now, I find interesting his response. Job says to her, and I think he's so gracious. I mean, you have to remember, she's just gone through the loss that Job has gone through, aside from the physical effects as well, right? So we need to cut her some slack, give lots of grace here. And he says to her, and this is, this is awesome, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. You notice that? He's not calling her a foolish woman. He's saying, honey, this isn't you. You're talking like a foolish woman. So I think Job is even being gracious in his response. But then he goes on to say, shall we receive good from God and not evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job, despite everything that has gone on in his life, is still holding on to um, his integrity, holding on to God, holding fast to him. And now we have, um, Job's got some friends that come and show up because they hear about what's going on. Now, we don't know exactly how long this went on, um, but we get a glimpse of that in chapter 7, verse 3. Job says that I'm allotted months of emptiness. Just, just hinting at the fact that this is going on for months. Now, like, you and I, we might be able to endure this. I don't know, probably couldn't. But, like, for a day or so or maybe a week, but, like, month after month of this continually going on, this emptiness that Job calls it, it would just get overwhelming. And so Job's got some friends that show up, 
Eliphaz, Bildad, and uh, Zophar. And uh, we don't know how far from uh, where they traveled, but they had to make an appointment all together to travel to see Job. Now, Job was well-known. He was the greatest in the East, so he had friends all over the place. So these guys travel to see him. And their goal in coming to him was to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, in verse 12, it says, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Couldn't even recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him. Get this. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was great. Oh, there's so many times I think that that needs to be our response. Is just sit with people who are in suffering. And say nothing. Because as we can see later, that their words were not that helpful. Uh, it causes me to think of Proverbs 19, uh, or Proverbs 10, verse 19. It says, where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips, he is wise. And I wish that it would end there with his friends, but it doesn't. Um, Job after seven days and seven nights of silence, he cries out in lament of just what's going on. He's just venting to his friends about, this is not awesome. He cries out and curses the day he was born. He says, let it be darkness. And this gives his friends what they think is an opportunity. Job has spoken, so now it's our turn to speak. And Job even cries out in chapter 13. He says to them, he's like, oh, that you would have kept silent. And that would have been your wisdom. Because they were coming trying to give him wisdom and understanding of why all this stuff was going on. And Job's like, your silence would have been wisdom, but what you've said hasn't been helpful. So their belief, when it comes down to it, in, in all their speeches, we're going to jump, we're going to like very, very shortly skim through like 34 chapters of speeches. Um, their belief is this, very simplistic, um, that God is just, which that part's true. So God is just, therefore, if you are righteous, you're blessed. And if you're wicked, you're punished. That's just how it works in their mind. There's no exceptions outside of either side of those things. If you're suffering, it's because you're wicked. If you're blessed, it's because um, you're righteous and you're following the ways of God. That is their thinking. And so they argue with Job saying, you have sinned. And you have sinned horribly to actually have this much tragedy come upon you. Um, I mean, this is what they say, just little excerpts of um, some of their speeches. Um, in chapter 4, verse 7, his first friend, Eliphaz, says, Who is it that has ever been innocent that was perished? And as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap, they reap the same thing. Basically saying, you, you got this because this is what you gave out. Another one of his friends says this in 11.6. Can you believe this? You know that God exacts less of you than you deserve. Saying, you should be going through worse because of how sinful you are. This is the consoling comfort of his friends. Another one of his friends says, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquity and your sin. It gets to the point, Bildad, in his, in his final speech, he calls him a worm and a maggot. They accuse him and just make up stuff of what he has done wrong. Because they're like, well, you surely had to do this kind of thing wrong for this bad stuff to happen to you. You've, you've taken stuff away from widows, right? You know, you, uh, you've stripped the naked of their clothing, which is a crazy sentence even in and of itself. It's like, 
the naked, they already don't have much clothes, but you've taken what little they might have had. That's how bad you are, Job. This is what his three friends are telling him. Now, there's a few things they got right, which is, which is difficult when you read through it, because sometimes you'll read it and you'll be like, that seems right. Well, there's some things they did get right. They were very adamant that if you confess your sin to God, he will forgive you. And that is so true. Just in this moment, in this fact, there wasn't anything big that Job was needing to confess. So they had that part wrong, but they had some of it right. And so Job responds to his friends throughout the whole thing. Um, and his response to them um, is basically a cry of like, what are you guys doing? You're supposed to be here to comfort me. This is not helpful. Um, and he says to them in 19.5, he says, you make my uh, disgrace an argument against me. Like you're using what I'm going through as an argument against me. He's like, come on, guys. Um, he cries out to them. And, in, and this is kind of summing up a lot of what Job is saying in some of his speeches. Is He's like, I see righteous people that suffer. He's like, and I see wicked people who prosper. So explain that to me. If, if God only ever punishes those who are wicked and only blesses those who are righteous, how come I see that that isn't always the case? And we see through 34 chapters that they are debating this with one another. And his friends stay solid on the line of, well, no, it's only because they are righteous they're blessed and only because they are wicked that they are punished. And Job is crying out for wisdom and understanding. Like, I, I don't get this. I don't see how that works all the time. Um, he, he ends up by saying, you are miserable comforters. You're worthless physicians. And the more that Job's friends push him, the more he pushes back. And so in the beginning, Job kind of admits, he's like, well, I'm not perfect, but like, I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. By the end of the speeches and Job's friends pushing him so hard, he stands very hard on his, his righteousness and the fact that there is no sin in his life at all. Now, uh, this is where I think that Proverbs 10, 19 is, is true, that in the abundance and where there's many words, sin is unavoidable, is we see some of that in Job here. Because this is the reality. There's only one human being that has ever lived that is perfectly perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. So us who have given or have been given God's righteousness, we are now um, righteous sinners is what I would say, is that we still have sin in our lives that is, that is getting kind of entangled and stuff, and God is making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And so Job, I think, makes a few errors in what he says. Um, in 1324, he cries out when he says, God, show me my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me? He's like, you're regarding me as an enemy. And then in 19.6, he's like, no, that God has put me in the wrong and he's clothed about his net about me. He's like, I cry out violence to God, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Job is making some pretty strong statements against God here, saying there is no justice, God. Um, and in 24.12, he says, this is even getting to the bigger point of it. Out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. This is where Job is in his wrestling. I mean, and he is all over the place because he's going through something crazy emotional in this time. He's in an emotional roller coaster, realistically. But there's something very interesting throughout it all. Job keeps his faith in God. We see this in... Uh, Chapter 13, verse 15, which is beautiful. Job is crying out and he says to God, even if he slays me, I will hope in him. Even if he slays me, I will hope in him. And then in chapter 19, verse 25, this may sound familiar to, to some of you. Job says this, 
As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you guys know that's where we get that song? The really great, upbeat, happy song of my Redeemer lives, you know, shouting this chant came from the depths of Job's despair. Job says, 1925, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in that the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, some translations say worm-filled skin, has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. His hope is remaining steadfast in God, despite his questioning, despite his not understanding everything that's going on. So when it's at this point in the story that a new character steps in, and his name is Elihu. Um, and he is a young man who's been there the whole time, and he was just waiting to see, okay, what kind of wisdom do these old, wide, sage men have? And he steps in, and he is not happy. First off, he's angry at, his, at the friends because he's felt that they've given Job no help whatsoever, which is basically true. He's also angry at Job, uh, and this is, this is why. In chapter 33, verse 10, he says this to Job. He says, Job, you say I am pure without transgression, and I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. And behold, he finds occasion against me and counts me as his enemy, which God wasn't counting Job as the enemy. In fact, God was actually proud of Job. So in that, that's not right either. But he says in verse 12, Elihu says to Job, behold, in this, you are not right to say that you are without iniquity and that he finds occasion against me and counts me as my enemy. And so Elihu tries to give Job some of what the other friends didn't. He tries to answer some of his questions. And so the big thing out of Elihu's speeches is basically he's saying there is another reason people suffer aside from just punishment for being wicked. And this is how he tries to explain it in, uh, in chapter 33. Um, look it up. He says it's to turn a person from their sin. And in 33.29 he expounds upon that. And he says, God does all these things twice or three times with a man to bring his soul back from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Now, Jesus is the one who is the light of life and he is the one who shines in us. So what Elihu is saying here is that it is so that you can be more like Jesus. He wouldn't have had terms to call him Jesus because Jesus hadn't come at that point. But he's saying it's so that the light of life will shine brightly within that person. And this is what we call sanctification. This is the process of being refined, made pure, made more like Jesus, made holy. And um, it's interesting that most things are refined through fire, through trials, through testing. It's like gold. You put gold in a fire and you heat it up and what happens is all the impurities rise to the surface, the dross, and you scrape it off. You heat it up and the impurities rise and you scrape it off just to get it pure and pure and more pure and more pure. And that is what Elihu is saying is that God actually has a loving purpose. He's trying to make you more pure, Job. Now, Elihu also wanted to see Job justified because he was like, Job, I don't fully understand why this is happening to you because I know of you as a righteous and good man. He's like, so I'm very interested to see how this plays out and see what God does. But he's like, this is one option. This may be why God is doing this to you. Um, and he also start, goes into this massive speech on his defense of God because Job had called out God multiple times. Um, and in 34.12, Elihu says that, um, in truth, God does not act wickedly. And the Almighty does not pervert justice, because that's what Job was calling out God for. He's like, God, you have perverted justice. There is no justice. It's not happening. I don't see it. Um, 
So that we have kind of Elihu's speeches. And then he goes into explaining um, to Job just from nature of how amazing God's ways are. He looks to um, the rain and the clouds and the thunder and the lightning and says, like, can you, like, this is all what God made. Isn't it amazing? Like, it, it, it's awesome. He is so powerful and so wonderful. And that's kind of how Elihu ends his speech. And I don't know if Elihu's speech gets interrupted or he kind of finishes or whatnot, but all of a sudden, God shows up. And this is awesome. This is awesome. Just the fact that God shows up is amazing. Um, I'll talk more about that at the end. But the Lord shows up in a whirlwind, in like a tornado. God is there and he speaks to Job out of this whirlwind, out of this tornado. And it might not be what you expect it to be. This is the first thing that God says to Job. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this person who's talking to me who doesn't know what they're talking about? Is basically what God is saying to Job. And then he calls on him. He's like, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Because Job had been questioning God this whole time. And now God's like, you know what? I'm going to question you and you answer me and see if you can. So God um, goes into this big uh, speech of questioning Job on where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there? Do you know how they were laid? What about the sea and how it is set? What about the sun and the stars and the constellations? And he goes through all of these things. And I mean, even in just a couple of those, you feel like, okay, all right, all right, God, I get it. I don't know what, what you're talking about. But then he goes on, and it's interesting. God says same of the same arguments, some of the same arguments that Elihu was saying about, okay, Job, God is this crazy, powerful God. Like, we can't even understand all this. And then God is saying some of those same arguments. So some people believe Elihu wasn't really on track with God, but I kind of think he was more in line with God than any of the other ones. And so he's asking Job all these questions. What about lightning? Do you know where that comes from? Do you know where mountain goats give birth, like on the mountain in the remote wilderness, God's like, Job, do you, do you watch the mountain goats give birth? He's like, because I'm there. I see it. I watch it. Like just the, just the magnitude of who God is. I would encourage you, read through those questions that God has for Job. And so then God kind of stops and he's like, hey, Job, what do you have to say for yourself? And in chapter 40, uh, Job responds. He says, I am of small account. He says, God, I am nothing. What shall I say to answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. Job is just like, I, nope. I've said too much. And then you think God would be like, okay, all right. He understands this point, but God goes on again. And he brings up two amazing animals, uh, the behemoth and the leviathan. Now there's a lot of debate on what these animals are. Um, I would lean probably more towards dinosaurs, and some people probably wouldn't lean that way. But you can figure that out for yourself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But God says to Job, look at these massive animals. Can you control them? Can you create them like I did? Uh, and obviously Job's response is, no, I, I can't. But God is saying to Job, you can't even create, or you can't even control or necessarily understand the things you see in the world around you. How do you think you can understand things that are far above you in the heavenly realms? Um, so basically, God gives Job the answer, not necessarily the ones that he was wanting, because he was wanting an accusation of what sin has he done that God could you know, um, show him that he could defend himself. 
but what God says to Job is there's things going on that you know nothing about, that you don't understand. And that is exactly the case because there were things going on he knew nothing about. Satan reporting before God and God talking to Satan in that way in this whole, this whole test of Job. So this is basically the answer that God is giving Job is there's things going on you don't understand, but I do. Now, I find it interesting um, as we look to the end of this story in chapter 42. After the Lord has spoken, Job responds one more time. And he says to God in 42, uh, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And basically Job responds, he's like, you said, who is this man that hides counsel without knowledge? He's like, I've uttered what I didn't understand. Um, things that are too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said to me here and I will speak. I will question you. You make it known to me. And Job said, I'd heard about you from the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, Job's response, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. In the end of this, we see Job repent in humility before God. I find it interesting. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think what we saw here is as God was heating up Job's life, that gold was getting refined in the fire, there was impurities coming to the surface. And what did we see coming to the surface in Job's life? We see pride. And then when God comes and speaks to him, what is it? He kind of comes at him, right? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so Job humbles himself and repents in dust and ashes before the Lord. And God gives him grace. And I find this awesome. In chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, one of his three friends, he says, my anger burns against you and your two friends. Notice they don't talk about Elihu here, the fourth friend. God doesn't say anything to, to him specifically, which you can take however you want. But he rebukes Eliphaz and the three friends and says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, you have to take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer to not deal with you according to your folly. Now, can you imagine that? These guys come to comfort Job and they do exactly the opposite. They actually make it worse for him. And then God says, you know what? Because you kind of screwed up this relationship. Like if you think about it, if you had three friends come to you in your darkest moment and they just like criticized you and hurt you so bad, don't you think that that relationship would be a little bit uh, broken and wrecked? And so I find it interesting that God puts value on the relationship. And God says to them, you need to offer up burnt offerings and Job will pray for you and I'll listen to his prayer. So they have to come to Job, who by the way, is still covered in sores and still has nothing. And also a testament to Job and his character is that he does it. He gives forgiveness. He offers forgiveness to these guys for what they have done in his darkest moment. And God listens. And now, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job in verse 10 of 42, when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known before came and comforted him in his house. 
for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So I want to just say a couple things as we kind of wrap up this whole story of everything that's kind of gone on here. And some of these things are very difficult to understand. The first thing is, is that who did this? Well, Job, the entire time, calls out God for being the one who did it. In chapter 6, 4, he says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. It would please God to crush me. His friends say that it was God that did it to him. The writer, in the end, says, for all the trouble that the Lord had brought upon him. The writer says that it's God. And even God himself says that it was me. In the beginning, when he's talking to Satan, it's like, you incited me to bring disaster upon Job. Satan even says that it's the Lord that did it. He says, Lord, um, stretch out your hand against Job. Now this is hard for us. This is hard for me. Why would God do that? How could God do that? That doesn't seem fair. How can God be good and just and an awesome God if he still, if he does that to someone? That's exactly what Job and his three friends discuss for 34 chapters as they debate on how is this possible? But there's one thing that they all agree on and that I agree on. God is in control. God is sovereign. He is the one in control of everything, even Satan. When you think about it, Satan had to come before God and give a report for what he was doing. And then God put Satan on a leash. He's like, you can do this to him, but you can't do that. You can go no further. God even uses Satan to accomplish some of his plans. Now that is hard to understand. We see that in the New Testament with Jesus being killed on the cross. Who was it that betrayed him? It was Judas. And who was it that was in Judas? It was Satan who possessed him to do that. But God used it for something great, for the glory of his son. And that is what God tries to explain to Job is that there are things going on that we don't understand, but that he is in control. So how did Job do it? How did he remain faithful through it all? Well, there's a couple hints of this. In the very beginning, he fell back on the truth. The whole time he kept going back to God. He cried out to God. If you notice, reading through all the speeches, Job cries out to God in the first person. God, you, you and I. You look at all his friends, they talk about God in the third person. I find that very interesting that God and Job, there was an actual intimate relationship where Job was crying out to God. Even though he didn't understand everything, even though he did say some things that were pretty harsh toward God, he went to God. Is it God that we go to when we're going through hard times and suffering? Or do we go to other people? God answered him, by the way, which reminds me of Jeremiah 29, 13, is that those who earnestly seek me will find me. That's a promise, that no matter what you're going through, that those who earnestly seek God when they seek him with all their heart, he will show up. They will find him. So how do we do it? How do we endure through trials and tribulations and suffering and testing? Well, what is your hope placed in? That was the argument of Satan from the beginning, is that his hope is placed in all his materials, possessions, family, fame. But actually it showed us that Job's hope 
was placed in God. Because when it was all taken away, everything, his friends, his family, his health, his, his uh, position, his respect, it was all taken away. He still hoped in God. Is your hope in your money, possessions, fame, family, friends, your health? I encourage you, place your hope in God. He will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank and praise you for your word. And God, there's some things that we don't understand, some things that seem hard for our human finite minds to grasp, God. But I pray that our hope will be placed in you despite our circumstances, despite anything that goes on around us, that our hope would be in you and you alone. That people would see that is you that gives us hope. That is you who we are striving toward. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.